0: My name is Xenia Makovsky, and I'm a student project manager at the Clark Forum at Dickinson College. Here with me today is Professor Russell Bova. Professor Bova is the J. William Stewart, Class of 32, Chair in International Studies at Dickinson College. His research specializes in Russian politics and Russian political culture. He is the author of How the World Works, a brief survey of international relations, and his publications on Russian politics and democracy have appeared in journals such as World Politics, Soviet Studies, and Journal of Democracy. So, Professor Bova, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. So, the Clark Forum has had several panels on Ukraine, and prior to last Tuesday's panel, the most recent was in February of 2022, just before the war started. So I know a lot has happened in the past year, but if we look at the past year of events, what do you think are the most important developments or takeaways that we are now left with one year into the conflict?
1: Okay. Yeah, I would say if we look back 14 months when the war started, there have been some surprises that people did not anticipate. One of them is that the economic sanctions that we've imposed on Russia have not had the kind of impact that we had anticipated they would. Another big surprise is that militarily, uh, the Russian army has performed much less uh, successfully than many people had anticipated uh, going into the war. A third surprise is that the Western coalition, the United States and its NATO allies essentially, has stuck together, right, more effectively than many people had anticipated going in. So we've learned a lot over the course of the past year that people had not anticipated, right, uh, going into the war prior uh, you know, to the invasion.
0: And why you mentioned that perhaps Russia hasn't as well as some people had expected or hoped? Why do you
1: think that is? There's multiple uh, explanations, and there's disagreement among you know, informed observers of this. The two general explanations that are offered are, A, Russia has a bad army. Uh, its military is not as competent as we had anticipated. But a, an alternative explanation is they their army is fine, but the plan for how they would use it in this particular case was not well thought out. I think that's probably the answer to the question of why Russia hasn't performed as well as we have anticipated is probably a little bit of both of those things. And they kind of reinforced, they reinforced one another.
0: I noticed last week that President Putin, he signed a new law that draftees are prevented now from leaving the country. Do you think that that indicates anything about the current state of the Russian military?
1: There's a couple things. So you gotta remember back in September, the Russians were running short of military manpower because they were losing an incredible amount of soldiers to casualties over the prior months. So they had a partial mobilization. Now this mobilization is, was of reservists. These tend to be older men and women who have some prior experience. They're not young, college-age, you know, 19, 20-year-old conscripts. Russia does have a conscription army, But to this point in time, those young conscripts have not been sent to the war in Ukraine. The soldiers who are fighting there tend to be older individuals, um, late 20s, 30s, even older in some cases, with prior military experience. So back in September of 2022, there was a partial mobilization and all kinds of problems with that, including hundreds of thousands of Russians about to be mobilized fleeing the country, going to neighboring Georgia and Kazakhstan and wherever uh, they can get out of the country, to Turkey and so forth. So this new law is intended to make it more difficult for people to avoid being called up. Now, this particular law is only applying to those young conscripts who are still not being sent to the front. But the indications seem to be that this is kind of a trial run, And that this new law will eventually be applied to reservists as well, should there be another mobilization or a partial mobilization later this year.
0: Mm -hmm. And one question that I was hoping someone would ask on Tuesday night, I guess it was, but nobody got around to, is the grain situation in Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the world's top exporters of wheat and other grain products. and They're usually shipped to the Middle East. Um, but Russia's invasion obviously disrupted that, and I know that there was some, you know, UN deals to help supply that, and it's been partially effective. But now, what's happening, I think, in Europe is a lot of countries. There's a kind of a over, too much, uh, grain that's entering the countries, and countries like Romania, Slovakia, there's kind of a backlog, and they're not as supportive. Yes. Yeah. So, what are the impacts of this now that we're going to see?
1: So let's go back to the beginning when the war began most of the grain that leaves Ukraine you know goes on ship via uh, the Black Sea. The Black Sea is a war zone. There's a threat to those ships, insurance costs were rising as a result of the war taking place in that vicinity and so Ukrainian grain was not uh, able to leave the country and grain exports are crucial not just for providing supplies to the world particularly the global south Those grain exports and other exports, you know, going through the Black Sea are crucial for the Ukrainian economy in general. So back in, I think it was like around March or April of 2022, a deal was negotiated. It was mediated by the Turks in which the Russians agreed to allow ships loaded with Ukrainian grain to safely pass through the Black Sea to reach global markets. And the I think the reason the Russians were willing to do that is because you know, they weren't trying to help out the Ukrainians. The Russians were looking to, for support in the Global South, right, for their war, or at least to keep the Global South neutral in the war. And making Ukrainian grain shipments unavailable to countries in the Global South, which were dependent upon those, would not have been an effective political strategy. So the Russians uh, reached a deal. The deal expired uh, just about a month ago. It was extended temporarily, it's set to expire again in May. So it's, it remains to be seen how that will, what will happen going forward. But related to that, and the other issue you we're raising is um, a lot of Ukrainian grain has been making its way to countries in NATO who are militarily aligned with the Ukrainians. And those countries have opened their borders to those Ukrainian uh, exports, and they've helped to pick up some of the slack that resulted from even temporary inability to export through the Black Sea to the rest of the world. But now those countries, and you mentioned some of them, but include many others. Poland, for example, which has been one of the most ardent supporters of Ukraine, has now basically said, we're not going to import any more grain from Ukraine. And the reason is very simple. It has been driving down prices in Poland, Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been harmful to the Polish agricultural sector.
0: Likewise with the green topic, I know that before the war there was concerns that Ukrainian farmers would not be able to harvest the wheat from the previous winter and then even plant in the fall. Has this been still a concern from the war or has that kind of, how farmers adapted to that?
1: Yeah, I mean there's been some dislocation clearly, right, if you're in the middle of a war zone and bombs are dropping. And you know the war is being fought on territory that used you know, previously was agricultural land. Some of that territory is not now being used for uh, producing grain or anything else for that matter but remember ukraine 's a big country it 's the second country, second largest country in europe and that 's only if you include russia as a, as a european country so there 's lots of land in in Ukraine that is con, uh, continuing to be utilized for farming purposes. The grain is being harvested. And it's being sold, right, to, uh, to meet the needs of Ukrainian citizens for food, to export through the Black Sea to the Global South, and over land to countries in, in Europe. So in large part, the Ukrainian agricultural economy is continuing to function with some dislocations, as one would expect, you know, given that there's a war.
0: There's been quite a few meetings between China and Russia. Is this an alliance that, you know, the U.S. or Ukraine should be?
1: I wouldn't call the the Russian-Chinese relationship an alliance, right? If by that we mean an agreement whereby each is is committed to coming to the military defense of one another, right? Like NATO, it's not an alliance in that sense. But you could say uh, it represents an alignment of interest at this particular point in their in their relationship. If you look at what's happening in Ukraine from the Chinese perspective, there are things about it that the Chinese might be happy about, and there are things that they might be concerned about. For example, China has no interest in seeing this war escalating to the nuclear level, and one suspects that the Chinese have been warning the Russians that this would not be something that China could support. On the other hand, to the extent that it distracts the United States from the Taiwan issue, from the South China Sea issue, That, you know, might be of some utility to the Chinese because it prevents the United States from moving forward, you know, with this pivot to Asia that we've been talking about now for the past at least three presidential administrations because now we're preoccupied with our support of Ukraine. And so, to the extent that both China and Russia have an interest in challenging what they call American hegemony in the world, there is this alignment of interest between the two countries at least on this particular issue. I would also add that this has led to further economic interaction between the two countries. China needs and can use relatively cheap Russian energy to fuel its dynamic economy. Russia, on the other hand, is a major energy provider for the rest of the world. In fact, there's not a heck of a lot other than energy and raw materials that Russia exports to the rest of the world. So to the extent that China becomes a place to export natural gas and oil, which the Europeans at this point are no longer buying from Russia, it's it's useful to Russia to have that relationship with China as well.
0: Similarly, are there any kind of other like alignment of interests or that you use—between any other countries that should be considered or important in the war?
1: You know, on the pro-Ukraine side, it's obviously the United States, the, the NATO countries of Western Europe. Japan uh, and so forth. On the Russian side, it's basically Russia, Belarus, which is becoming more and more a satellite of Russia. We've already talked about the relationship with China. And beyond that, the Iranians are providing the Russians with some military support, the North Koreans as well. But if you look at much of the global south, it's really you know, more or less kind of an ambivalent relationship to this war. If you think of countries like India, sub-Saharan Africa, and so forth, they're not aligned firmly on one side or the other. But you know, they are not necessarily you know going out of their way to condemn the Russian invasion either, right? This is not an issue that is central on their you know uh, list of interests uh, around the world.
0: So you mentioned that economic sanctions have kind of been more symbolic than actually.
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't go quite that far. I mean, they've they've been significant in the sense they've caused pain, Mm -hmm. right, for the Russians, right? Russian consumers, Russian industry, the Russian military have all felt a, a real impact from these sanctions, okay? So they've caused pain for all of those sectors of Russian society and the Russian economy. But you have to remember that the purpose of sanctions is not just to cause pain, is to see that pain translated into a change of policy. And so far we have not seen that change of policy. We have not seen any retreat, right, from Russia's determination to continue its war effort in Ukraine. And the reason why that pain has not translated into a change of policy I think is twofold. One, Russia is an authoritarian regime which has upped the level of repression over the last year and so even if Russian citizens are feeling the impact of sanctions, their ability to do anything about that is relatively, is relatively limited. Number two, the Russians have been able to find ways to at least mitigate, if not entirely eliminate, that pain. So you can't buy semiconductors from the United States anymore, you buy them from China, or you transship them. U.S. sells semiconductors to Kazakhstan and somehow they find their way into, into Russia. So they've been able to not eliminate the pain but reduce its impact enough so that at least at this point Putin does not see that the the impact of those sanctions is enough to force his hand when it comes to you know how he's going to conduct a war in Ukraine.
0: Okay so you have economic sanctions and then we have you know western military aid from a lot of the European right. countries and the United States and then uh, we've also, you know, military training that's going on. There's still on top of that diplomatic talks that are still happening. Do you think any of this will help stop the war or is more fighting just kind of inevitable at
1: this point? Okay. There's really not much in the way of diplomacy taking place between Ukraine and Russia or between NATO and the United States on the one hand and Russia on the other. Both sides at this point in time, but that didn't mean the Ukrainians and the Russians, are still fighting this war as if they believe that they can win, that they can prevail. And until one or both of those sides reaches the conclusion that they cannot win this war and that the cost of continuing to fight it, their incentive to negotiate seriously is going to be be very low. Now it's interesting that American interest about how this war will end and Ukrainian interest might not necessarily be 100% the same. The Ukrainians are, you know, they're, that's the country whose land has been taken away by the Russians. The Ukrainian government's position at this point is we are going to fight this war until every square inch of Ukrainian territory is recaptured. And that includes Crimea, which they lost in 2014. Publicly, the body administration says we support that objective. But uh, I suspect behind the scenes, right, that the Biden administration would be willing to settle for a negotiated end to the war short of Ukraine recovering every inch of land. And the reason for that is the Biden administration, A, does not want this war to escalate to a direct Russian NATO war. And they certainly don't want it to escalate to a war if the Russians decide to use a nuclear weapon. The longer the war goes on, the greater the risks of one or the other or both of those things occurring. So I think the Biden administration would like to reach negotiated settlement. They would be more willing than the Ukrainians would be to make compromises, which would entail Russia retaining control of at least some parts of Ukrainian land. And at that point in time, the Biden administration would have to use the leverage that we have, and the leverage comes in the form of the military assistance that we give to the Ukrainians, to have the Ukrainians reach the conclusion that a negotiated settlement might be in their interests as well.
0: And you, want, you talked about Crimea, which was my next question. You mentioned how it was a kind of a red line, and you could see that the conflict escalating after that. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, okay. So there's a couple of things that I think distinguish Crimea from the the rest of eastern Ukraine, which Russia now occupies. One distinction is time. Russia took control of Crimea in 2014. They have had control of Crimea now for close to a decade. So to give up Crimea, either by losing the war, losing it militarily, or through a negotiation, is gonna be much harder for the Russians to accept than making concessions on territory in the Donbas region or other parts of eastern Ukraine. The other reason there's a difference is, is the history. Crimea up until 1954 was a part of the Russian Republic of what was then the former Soviet Union. In 1954, the Khrushchev administration in the Soviet Union transferred Crimea to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. At that point in time. That was really of little significance because both Ukraine and Russia were part of the same country, the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapses, however, Crimea goes with the rest of Ukraine as an independent and sovereign sovereign state. Now there's a long history of Russian-Ukrainian relations and the status of Crimea that goes back centuries. It is not true as Putin would sometimes have us believe, that Crimea has always been a part of Russia. No, that's that's not the case. But if you simply look at recent history, Crimea was a part of Russia or part of the Russian Federation up until 1954, and that is not true of the rest of the land that they currently occupy. So it would be very difficult for the Putin administration to say, you know what? we can live without Crimea. He would get enormous pushback from hardliners in Russia itself, to the point where the continued viability of his regime could be in doubt.
0: And just to finish, is there any other information that you would like to add about the war or the conflict that you think listeners should be aware of?
1: Well, a couple things. My best guess is this is gonna be a long conflict. I hope I'm wrong, and nobody really knows you know for for sure, but if one year from now we are still talking about a war occurring in Ukraine, that would not be that would not be surprising so that's one thing that observers have to you know uh, listeners of this have, uh, interview should keep in mind, and the other thing is we have a presidential election coming up in two thousand twenty four and there's a very good chance that if this war, if I'm correct that this war is still occurring in the run-up to that election, that the war might very well become an issue. And it's interesting that those on the sort of the Trump wing of the Republican Party, and many on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, are of the same mind when it comes to the question of how long American support for Ukraine should continue. Both of those very different wings of American politics, you know, the MAGA right and the progressive left, are raising the same questions about how much military support, how much money we should be expending on Ukraine, about whether the risk of this escalating to something larger, a direct U.S. Russian confrontation, is really worth it. And I suspect in 2024, you're going to have increasing pressure from both of those sides of American politics beginning to shape even the Biden administration's approach to the war. So something to be paying attention to, I think, next year.
0: So that concludes today's interview. If you would like to hear more about the Russian-Ukraine conflict, then you can go to our website at parkfirm.org and you can find the panel from last Tuesday evening. But thank you, Professor Bova, so much for joining me.
1: My, my pleasure.